So eudaimonic well-being essentially is the theory of well-being where your actions and the way that you spend your time is aligned with your values and what you care most about. But in order to know what you care most about, you need to be able to disconnect from the prefrontal cortex and allow yourself to feel some feelings. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. My guest today has spent thousands of hours taking care of women who are struggling with burnout, despair, depression, and anxiety. You may recognize her from the New York Times primal screen piece called How Society Has Turned Its Back on Mothers. This isn't just about burnout, it's about betrayal. Dr. Pooja Lakshman is a psychiatrist specializing in women's mental health. She's a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the George Washington University School of Medicine. She's the founder of Gemma, a digital community focused on women's mental health and equity, and a contributor to the New York Times. Her work focuses on the intersection of mental health and gender. She specializes in helping women and marginalized groups heal from the tyranny of what she calls faux self-care, false self-care, while exposing the systems that have gotten us here. One of the most important pieces I got from this conversation with Pooja was the explanation of how different parts of our brains engage in different activities. So if we over-index on the prefrontal cortex— and we're constantly going, 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 putting more and more on our to-do lists. We can be fooled into thinking there's a hack or a system or an efficiency tool that will just help fix everything once and for all. But the problem is, is that this treadmill never stops. And the more we try to do, the more we end up tamping down and distancing ourselves from the feeling parts of ourselves. As you'll hear her talk about today, we lose sight of ourselves and we lose sight of our meaning and our purpose. In fact, she says when we overuse the prefrontal cortex, areas like the limbic system and other systems that actually allow us to feel joy or contentment or fulfillment or even grief and anger and sadness, those get tamped down and put on the back burner. Join us for a conversation about what self-care is and what self-care isn't and what she has learned as a psychiatrist taking care of hundreds of women struggling with the things that many, many, many women are struggling with today. One of the hardest things about being a CEO or being a manager or a leader is finding and carving out space to think. That is one of the reasons why I made the Wise Women's Council. Twice a month, we bring wise, vetted experts in to support you in your leadership development. Our core business trainings help CEOs and leaders make complex decisions more easily, learn how to say no, learn how to ask for help, and build a life and a business based on whole person leadership principles. Our leadership sessions support you in deepening your own internal wisdom, building at your personal growth edges, and improving your stamina and energy reserves. It's called the Wise Women's Council. We've been running it for six years now, and we open only twice a year for enrollments, once in the spring and once in the fall. If you want to find out more about this program and what people have to say about it, head over to startupparent.com slash WWC. Pooja, thank you so much for joining us on Startup Parent. It's so great to have you. I am so excited to be here. Your book comes out so soon. How are you feeling leading up to the book? Tell us all about the process. So the book is Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. I will be totally honest. I'm a ball of nerves right now. It's really interesting because what I've realized is that writing a book and launching a book is actually very similar to the entrepreneurship journey in that it's 10 different jobs rolled into one, none of which you have any training for, all of which have so much uncertainty. 
And again, like sort of the same kind of like entrenched system in that publishing is a very white, yes, <laughs> white male dominated. I mean, his stats are out there. It's like 95% of the books yes. published so far are like by white. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for saying it. It has been interesting and we can talk about this and dive into it. I, for myself, I'm a psychiatrist. You know, I went to medical school. I did psychiatry residency training. I'm always kind of thinking about, isn't it interesting how we recreate these patterns in our lives? And, you know, I left full-time academics because I was so sick of the toxic system of the white men and the way that it was all that stuff. And then I jumped into Gemma and entrepreneurship. And then I jumped into writing a book. It's like we keep recreating these same environments or we keep putting ourselves in these same environments. And I will say, I'm trying to be just really intentional and authentic and transparent in the conversations that I'm having in this book launch. Yes, I'm a psychiatrist and I have all these credentials and I am a real expert. And I also am just trying to figure it out too. Maybe all that to say that I'm in the process. I'm in the process. Yeah. And <laughs> what I hear is that it's incredibly hard because you finish writing the book and then you have all the edits. I mean, some people get a six to nine month break, right? You get not a break and you're building the entire marketing campaign and you're trying then to get everything prepared for launch day. And that's a huge job. It's a huge job. And it's just like, oh, no pressure. You just spent a decade of your life putting everything. You just wrote a book about essentially a decade of your life and your entire life's work. No pressure, right? Do you you have the goals for the book launch or do you have hopes or dreams? Or are you a person that's like, I'm just going to let it unfold and see what happens? Yeah, I think I ping pong back and forth. I'll put out there that I... I'm a psychiatrist. I specialize in women's mental health. My goal for my career is really to be the next version of Brene Brown. I think it's time that we have sort of the next generation of mental health thought leaders. And that's the goal that I have for myself. And I really love writing. And I think that's the medium that I work best in because for me, writing, it helps me think. I'm more of a visual person. So I would love to be able to write more books. But again, in the same way with entrepreneurship, a lot of this is in in my control. It's tough. It's the both and of working so hard, putting everything that you have into a project that means so much to you and that you believe in so much, but then also having to have the space to let the outcome go and trust that whatever is going to happen in the process is going to be okay. It's a ride. I'm in therapy. I've been in therapy for years and years. I have an eight-month-old. Last year, I was going through IVF and was pregnant and went back on Zoloft. I'm using all the tools. (laughs) I don't know. I think one of the ways that I'm thinking about it, too, is to letting myself really be present for this process and not be too goal-oriented. Like many of your listeners, I'm sure I share a personality trait of being hyper-productive, hyper-functional, super type A, wanting to know the answer, wanting to have it all be certain, and realizing that that's, one, that's not how building a company works. That's also not how writing a book or doing a book launch works. Or parenting, running. Oh my gosh. I've like thrown myself in the past two years into all of these different roles where I have zero control. At this point, I think it's just like kind of comical because that's the opposite of my personality. And I think I'm just trying to, to be okay with it all. I got them. I got tingles. I got like the good shivers. When you said you want to be the next version of Brene Brown or the next generation of Brene Brown, you have the credentials for it. You have the capacity for it. Like your writing is so cool. People listening probably have read the piece in the New York Times about betrayal and burnout. If you haven't seen that primal scream package in the New York Times, highly encourage you to look at it. I mean, the rage that mothers feel in terms of the last few years. You wrote so clearly and so compellingly about the difference between betrayal and burnout. And it captures this idea of like 
there's a cultural disease, there's a cultural problem that you live within, and burnout is not enough of a word to describe it. So can you explain the difference between burnout and betrayal and what that means to you? So maybe I'll kind of back it up to when the idea first came to me in that it all started actually in 2017, 2018, I was burnt out as a physician on the full-time faculty at GW and medicine, like a lot of other industries, you know, offers up like the resilience training and like the mindfulness lunch and et cetera. But, but the thing that we actually needed and still need is paid leave and you know, an equitable division of labor and all these other, you know, <laughs> child's care, right? All this stuff. So I wrote this piece for a website called Doximity that was called, we don't need self-care, we need boundaries. And it was pointing to the fact that when we use the language of individualism, whether it's burnout, whether it's self-care, whether it's resilience, we're exonerating all of these terribly designed systems that the problem actually lives inside. And women, people who identify as women, especially women of color, take that on even more because whatever social system you're living inside, it's always the women and the women of color who are sort of at the bottom of the totem pole and are carrying what I call sort of like the back of house labor, the front of house, if the report that you deliver is the meeting that you present at, but the back of house is all the stuff that's invisible. So we're doing all the back of house stuff, whether it's in our family, in our home life, whether it's on the job. But essentially, when we say something like burnout, we're completely missing the entire perspective and context of the systems that we live inside. And I felt like what I was seeing in my practice, and I only take care of women, and I would say like maybe 70 to 80 percent of patients in my practice are moms. So not all of them, but a good number. What I was seeing is during the crux of the pandemic, everybody was saying burnout, but like, no, it's this existential despair. And it's also this awakening for a certain subset of our population, a whiter, more affluent subset. Like what happens when you don't have childcare? Essentially, that's what happened during the pandemic. And you have to make these morally very complicated and traumatic decisions about how you parent and how you work. So it was borrowing a little bit from the language in the medical community of moral injury as opposed to burnout. And again, turning it back on the systems, as my thinking has evolved, I was working on the book. I was working on real self-care when I wrote that piece for The Times. It's interesting because in the past two years, we've seen more and more come out around wellness and how problematic wellness is. And I think we all know at this point that a bubble bath isn't going to fix anything, that getting a massage is great, but it's not going to get us paid leave. It's not going to fix the fact that for a Black woman, you have to work for 19 months to make the same amount of income that a white male makes in 12 months. A massage isn't going to fix that. You can't meditate your way out of a 40-hour work week. But the problem, I think, that the place that we're in now is like, okay, well, what are we supposed to do? Like, everything This is all a show. It's completely up. But no one has told us yet, well, what are we actually supposed to do then? Am I just supposed to like crawl in a hole and stay in bed forever? Yes. (laughs) I mean, no, no. (laughs) Affirming your question, not saying yes. (laughs) Well, that's what we all want to do. Like, That's what we all want to do. With real self-care, it's interesting because I was not intending to write a self-help book when I sold this book proposal. But when I actually started writing, what came out was a very prescriptive self-help book. Because I think when I got to writing, it felt like I was talking to my patients. And then I was just, oh, okay, there are things that we can do. And the things that we can do are not whether you do this fancy juice cleanse or like whether you're on this new diet. No, it's about asking yourself different questions. It's about having a completely different conversation 
And I think that's sort of the tie-in with entrepreneurship and building, whatever you're building, is you're constantly in this place of you're trying to go, 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 go. And your brain is always on this like very well-trafficked highway that is like so outcomes-oriented, goal-oriented. But the antidote, like we always feel in that state, we always feel like the antidote is like, do more. Like once I just finish this last pitch or once we just secure this funding, then it'll all be fine. But no, it's never. That's never the thing. That's never the thing. You need to have a completely different conversation. All of this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the two takeaways, I mean, I have a million takeaways and questions, but the two here that really stand out to me. Number one, I think the reason why the betrayal versus burnout struck such a chord is because it so clearly talked about we can't keep blaming the individual. We cannot keep blaming the individual. Yes, there's self-efficacy. Yes, there's personal responsibility. All of those things are important, but they're within a context. And, you know, when people talk about nature and nurture, I think that we need the same kind of dialogue around individual collective. And the interesting thing that I think you've done, which is my second takeaway, is when we talk about betrayal and when we talk about the systems, it can actually lead a lot of us into despair and to a place of, I'm just going to throw my hands up because it's all broken. It's all, like you said, gone. What am I supposed to do? Crawl under a rock? Just crawl back into bed? And it can leave people feeling hopeless because if this is such a huge systems, horrible moral injury, all of it, what do I do? And what your book does for me is it strikes the balance between let's look at the collective problem and now let's return our agency back to ourselves as much as we can. What can we do within this? What can we do from here? What's still possible? Knowing that it's totally right to feel like people are letting you down, but also it's not your fault, right? It's not your fault. And now what do we do? So yeah, I really, really appreciate this book. And I want to take some time to dive into the book, but I also want to make sure we have time to talk about your entrepreneurship journey and the company that you're building. And I want to talk about you being a parent to an eight-month-old. So, so we got a lot of ground to cover. First, can you give us a little bit of context about self-care, the term, and the word, like the history of it? From what you wrote, I believe it starts in like the mental health institutionalization space and what it is in the 2020s and the social media world is totally different. So can you give us a little glimpse into the word self-care? I was actually really interesting when I was doing the research for the book, diving into the history of self-care. The term originally came about in the 1950s or so on inpatient psychiatric units when there were programs for helping patients exercise or make choices about what they were going to eat. That was termed self-care because it was a way that somebody who was in a hospital getting psychiatric treatment could also make decisions about their health. And then after that, the nursing field started to talk about self-care in relation to compassion fatigue for healthcare workers. And then around the same time, there was a separate social justice movement that used the term self-care. And I would imagine most listeners to your show know Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks, who used self-care and really sort of brought self-care as self-preservation. That was what came out of that social justice movement and their amazing work to bring self-care as a political act into the broader language of our culture. Somewhere along the way, things very much got hijacked, though, and self-care turned into the pretty pictures that you see on Instagram, whether it's the person in the yoga pose or whether it's the turmeric latte or whatever it is. One fun tidbit that I learned from the book is that right after the 2016 election in the United States, was when Google searches for self-care peaked, which I thought was really interesting. So my thesis about all of this is that the reason that it's gotten so co-opted and commodified and turned into another consumerism project in America in particular is because as we have less trust and faith in our larger institutions that are supposed to be taking care of us, we're turning to these individual solutions. 
because we're American. We live in this puritanical society where we're supposed to build ourselves up from our bootstraps. It's also obviously coincided with the evolution of social media and the influencer and the content creator and sort of like all the different ways that you can find whoever your guru is that tells you to do a thing. In the book, I give the example. When you're depressed, it's a lot easier to just click buy on the latest vitamin pack that comes in pretty beige branding than to call your insurance company and fight with them to find out why you're not getting reimbursed for your out-of-network therapy. So I guess I also want to say, like, I don't want to shame anybody. Again, the context matters. We live in this system where... I think the studies show that women who work outside of the home have 35 minutes of discretionary time a day. And yeah, in those 35 minutes, you are completely out of gas. All you want to do is just scroll your phone and turn your brain off. We all know that it's not working and it's really tempting to then just feel totally hopeless and despairing about all of this. But in real self-care, what I'm trying to do is introduce this concept of both and. We can live in a completely crap system and there are still small spaces in our lives where we can exert control and agency and to provide actually the evidence-based tools and exercises that you can use to get yourself to that place. I think like another danger here that I'd love to touch on is especially in the entrepreneurship community, there's a false notion that efficiency can fix this. That if you just do all the meal delivery kits, if you just schedule everything to a T, I referenced that great quote from Marissa Myers from Yahoo a couple of years ago, it was during sort of like the lean in Sheryl Sandberg time where she was, if you schedule everything right, you can work a hundred plus hours a week if you're intentional about when you take a shower and when you use the bathroom. No, 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 that's not the answer. <laughs> not at all. Okay. I want to dig into two very specific things yes. here because I remember that part of the book and it unlocked a huge aha for me. So I want to ask you a few clarifying questions. Mm -hmm. I have the quote here. I'm looking down yeah. the book. You said, okay, to this point of, I'm going to like get another hack. I'm going to be more efficient, more productive. I'm just going to, once I solve this, then I will have time to rest. It seems like you're suggesting that that equation is totally flawed because there never arrives the rest part if you keep trying to spiral down into this, I'm going to get another service and another hack. And there's this piece of the book that says, curiously, that's the response from the prefrontal cortex, which just wants to continue getting things done. The feeling parts of the brain, which are screaming from exhaustion, are effectively silenced. Instead of experiencing a healthy range of emotions, women who hyper-focus on productivity ping pong back and forth between dread and relief. So that part, it created this aha for me because I instantly felt, oh, yeah, the more I go down the rabbit hole of efficiency, the more sticky and compulsive. I don't want to say addicted because that's a really specific word, but it's like the more I do that thing. And I'd never linked it to the different parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex versus the feelings and the limbic system. Can you talk about that? Wow, that was a mind-blowing moment for me. The way that I conceptualize it is that the prefrontal cortex which I'm sure folks have heard about. The prefrontal cortex does executive function. So essentially it's the parts of your frontal lobe that are focused on operations, making complex decisions, planning, scheduling, all the stuff that needs to get done for your life to be running and your family's life <laughs> to be running. Whereas all the other parts of the brain that we're talking about are places where you actually experience sensation and feeling. So areas like the limbic system and others that actually allow you to feel joy or contentment or fulfillment, or alternatively, grief or anger or sadness. And because we live in a society that functions on the unpaid operational labor of women and women of color, 
our prefrontal cortexes are the ones that are just essentially making all the happen. And it feels good for the things to happen. I like your intentionality about not necessarily using that word addiction, but there is a feedback loop in that it feels great because you get those hits of dopamine every time you check something off the list, every time you keep going down. But if you notice, you're not necessarily in that state, you're not deeply engaging with what those tasks actually mean. You're not allowing yourself to actually feel the having of those tasks or the having of those accomplishments or whatever it is. And so that's what I'm sort of pointing to there because the thing with real self-care, this whole process, we're trying to distill down to meaning. I reference the concept of eudaimonic well-being as opposed to hedonic well-being. So eudaimonic well-being essentially is the theory of well-being where your actions and the way that you spend your time is aligned with your values and what you care most about. But in order to know what you care most about, you need to be able to disconnect from the prefrontal cortex and allow yourself to feel some feelings. But women don't have that space. Coming back, there's only 35 minutes that you have as discretionary time. And the rest of the day, you're in your prefrontal cortex. When are you supposed to feel things? And because this is all sort of built up, the only thing I think many of my patients, when they come in, the only feeling that there is space for is anxiety that they're not doing enough, guilt around not doing enough. And then probably the next feeling would be exhaustion. Exhaustion, right. Like feeling right. Like feeling like- I would maybe put that in the category of numbness, dissociation. Yeah. You're just so dissociated and disconnected from it because you haven't been in that part of your nervous system for quite a while. So when you go back there, the first thing that you might feel is rage, deep, deep, soul-crushing exhaustion. Maybe we need a different word for that that we haven't thought of yet. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. Like there. It feels horrible. Why am I going here? And you might feel irritability. I feel twitchiness, irritability. If I really slow down, agitation, like those are some of the superficial things. And then you're like, I just got to go back to the dopamine head. Let me just get something done. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. like the escapism. Yeah. I think it's particularly applicable for the entrepreneurship community because We are tied in some certain really tough spots in that the reason that most people come to building a company is because you were usually previously in some sort of toxic work environment that didn't work. And at that time, you were really connected to your feelings and your values, and that led you to get out. And then you have this belief, I want to be a person who can make something different, who can make something better, who can put something good into the world. But then when you get into the building mode, so much of that is operations. So then you get lost. It's an error of good intention. Like It's not something to be ashamed about. I live in that space all the time, too. You can't write a book. You can't start a company, run a company without being on this treadmill. Correct. The added existential despair of realizing, like, wait a second, am I working 18 hour a day? Have I created the thing I ran away from? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's too yes. as part of the journey. Yes. Yeah. Um, that I'm sure people can relate to. We're going to take a quick break. If you are thinking about joining us in the Wise Women's Council, make sure you apply to join us during our spring or our fall enrollment. Head to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council. All right, let's get back into it. Okay, one more technical question about this concept because it's so interesting to me. I don't know much about the brain chemistry, so if you don't, I'll have to go look it up elsewhere. But when you're in your prefrontal cortex, does that shut off your emotional system capacity? Like, is there a distinct difference? Yeah. One of the things that has been over the past 10 to 20 years in psychiatry is that we are thinking less in terms of on-off switch or black and white when it comes to neural circuitry. And it's more about sort of volume dials 
and what areas get turned up and what areas get turned down. All of this is incredibly complicated and complex. Like there's a million different ways in which, like depending on your individual external environment and depending on whether you are somebody who has executive dysfunction or a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder or has been through trauma, like there's all lots of different nuances, but kind of in big buckets, we think of it in terms of volume dials and the ease at which different neural pathways can be regulated. As opposed to thinking of like on or off, we're thinking about sort of more along the lines of how does it regulate? How does it respond? The way that I frame this in my practice is it has a really nice tie-in. I like the volume dial metaphor. If we're talking about guilt, that's another place where it's so easy to get caught up when that guilt switches on versus when that guilt switches off. And if you're a woman, like the guilt switch is usually just on all the time. I refer to it as a faulty check engine light because it's just the type of thing that's always in the background. But if we think of it as a volume dial, like how can I turn the volume dial, turn the volume down, then that I think is like a more helpful metaphor to think about how we coexist with guilt. I feel like I'm on like five different trains here. So just that's okay because it is, it's complicated. And I think having simple answers belies the puzzle. But I want to take this volume metaphor because what I'm taking away from this is if I am doing executive function things, if I'm organizing the house from start to finish in the morning and then I'm 10 hours of work or six hours or four hours, whatever it is in a day, I don't want to normalize 10 hours because it's not always like that. But then I go straight into the 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. situation, which is organizing kids to go to bed, by which in my head at 8.30, I'm screaming like, put your f***ing pajamas on. Oh, my God. Don't wipe your poopy butthole from the couch. Like, I'm just like dying inside. And with the volume dial, the more I engage in the checklist, the more I check things off, the more I'm turning up the volume and reinforcing that neural pathway. It's like if you take the same path through the woods all the time, you're going to carve out a really solid hiking trail in I get things done, I get things done, I get things done, I get things done. We actually have to turn the volume down and say, okay, I have to put the to-do list down for just five minutes. And I have to go over to that other dial, which is checking in with my emotions and maybe turn it from 1% to 2% today. Get it to a level where when my body is whispering at me, I'm not waiting so long that it starts screaming. The entire car is broken down on the side of the road in Alaska and I'm dying. But that, oh, I heard it when it was at 30% because I let that part of myself in as well. I'm not sure if that metaphor worked. I think it does. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The thing that I would add to that, and this is definitely mixing metaphors, but whatever. That's my specialty, by the way. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> like the thing that comes to mind for me in you sharing that is... A very common conversation that I have in my practice, which would be the woman who finally gets it together or makes it happen to get a massage. And she's able to carve out an hour and a half and everything's taken care of. But then she spends the whole time on the massage table worried about the fact that did the kids get the right lunch packs? Do I still have to finish that pitch deck? Did this person respond to my email? Are they going to respond to my email? Then you feel like you've spent $200 ruminating basically. So the solution to that actually is that we actually have to do less. We are doing too much. We are doing too much. Unfortunately, because that's such a hard message to hear for myself too, you have to read a whole book that has all this other stuff. It's like first you have to learn to set boundaries. First, you have to like change how you talk to yourself because to even give yourself permission to do less. And that's why I love how you structure your show, Sarah, where you're really talking about sort of what don't you do to give people permission not to do as much. But I think it's even deeper than that in that this means that you also have to be okay with not keeping up with the Joneses. This means you have to be okay with quote unquote failure this means you have to be okay with looking bad. That's the path that gets you closer to real self-care. Yeah. And freedom, your own definition of it, mm -hmm. to the extent that it's possible. It reminds me, my husband and I, I say husband, partner, 
I don't love the words husband and wife, but we use them. Mm -hmm. I love that too. My partner, Justin, and I, we're domestic partners. Ooh. Yes. And then I say partner, but he's male. Right, right. So it's like weird. Like, what is the word anyway? (laughs) Yes, we need a new one. My iPhone auto-corrected it to husband, and I've never (laughs) fixed it. (laughs) So it's like an anti-joke. So I don't know if that's the case because it's like husband. Okay, so anyways, I think you're so right because a lot of this is asking the hardest question. What is important to me? What do I value in this precious time that I have on earth? And what are all the things that I actually don't give a crap about? What can I totally let go of? Someone told us, they're like, I have four bathrooms, so now I clean four toilets. And it's like, oh, right. And you either have to pay someone to clean four toilets or you have to be cleaning four toilets. He's like, I don't want to do that. I want to spend time with my kids. This is a well-known businessman, a creative artist. And I was so glad he said that. Our house search, our apartment search was, what's the smallest house that brings us the most joy? What is the least we can spend so that we can have more time freedom, so that we can have other freedoms? Otherwise, we get pulled along by the Joneses and the influencers. And then on top of that, one of the things that I do in our local community is I invite moms over to my house first, because I know people live in fancy apartments. And I'm like, hey, you're invited to my apartment, wear your pajamas, I'm not going to clean it. And then I make something like pasta. Because I just want to set the bar really low. Yes. <laughs> so I'm showing up on this podcast today and I didn't put makeup on and I've got a pink face. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but I'd rather be that uncomfortable instead of miserable and burned out. Okay, back to this book. So you outline this process, this hard work, but also rewarding. I'm going to call it rewarding, essential, important, real your real work. You said there's four parts. Can you give us like a teaser of it just so that people know what they're getting in this book? So real self-care is a verb. It's not a noun. Like faux self-care is all the nouns. It's the massages. It's the bubble baths. Real self-care is an internal process. And I lay out four principles. The first being boundaries, because as we all know, boundaries are the first step to any decision-making process. You need to know what is yours and what is someone else's. You need to have the skill set to create that space between you and the people in your life that you really care about and the people in your life that you don't care about, right? You need to be able to do both. The second principle is compassion. And I will say, I am very much of the school that typically rolls their eyes at compassion. Like the word compassion just like feels very woo woo to me. And the frame that I'm using for compassion is coming from a concept called psychological flexibility, which is a word that comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. So I'm throwing around a lot of big words, but it's basically saying that this is like a concept that has been studied and is essentially developing a new relationship with your mind. So when we say self-compassion, essentially what we are talking about is having a new conversation with yourself. Going back to what we discussed before. Once you're learning that, I shouldn't say done because again, it's not like something that you just check off the list. The third principle is identifying your values. So what we've been talking about here, like what actually matters What is real for me? What brings me the most energy? And I've created an exercise or a tool that's called the Real Self-Care Compass. And it's focused on the values bit and the, the goals are actually secondary, which was really important to me because I think especially when we're talking about kind of entrepreneurship and building, we get so goal focused. So we need to come back to the values. We need to like, again, get out of our prefrontal cortex, get back to the feelings, what really fills us up, what is really important. And then the last principle is that this is actually power, bringing it back to the systems. This is how we come back to agency in our own personal lives. Gloria Steinem said, you know, the personal is political. You have the capacity to make choices about how you spend your time and your energy in your own life. And then taking a step further, if you were somebody who has privileges or has less oppression, Can you take that extra energy and can you put some of it towards the growth of women of color, of people who are disadvantaged? With power does come responsibility. So that's sort of like the framework. And what I want to say there too is that I'm coming from it as 
yes, a psychiatrist who has all these credentials, but also very much as someone who is living it and learning it. I wasn't expecting to write a self-help book. I have a lot of feelings about self-help as a genre and a field. So I really wanted to be intentional. I'm not at the top of the mountain here. I am also going through it. And that's actually the process because like real self-care, it's not like a massage. Or it's not going for a run. Like you can just check it off the list. It's actually about in every season of your life, you have to come back to that same process, Sarah, that you were talking about with your partner. But what kind of house do we want? Wait, no. What's really important to us? What do we care about? What do I care about? And then having the courage to make a decision aligned with that. And if you're doing it right, it's going to be different probably than what your expectations were or what your parents did or what all of your friends are doing. For the entrepreneurship audience, this is just even more important and even more urgent message because the type of person that tries to build something, it's just a very specific DNA in your optimism, in your wanting to do good. It's so easy to get lost from do it and to overdo it, to overdo it and forget what it all really means. And then to beat yourself up, to beat yourself up. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is one of the psychologically hardest journeys I've been through. I'm approaching 40. That's a lot of different journeys, but that and parenting changed my life. I think that this is something you do really well. You were talking about living it, right? You're going through this. You're not just a psychiatrist, an expert with 20 years of experience working with all these patients, but you are also a person who is journeying through this. I think that that is an area that is new. And I want to ask you about this. And then I want to ask you about Gemma. And that is, how do you set your own boundaries about how you show up for the world and talking about your lived experience? So how do you thread the needle between not being an influencer and painting a shiny, rosy picture, but also the medical community and the obligation to care? Have you created a plan for yourself? Is this something that challenges you? What's that like? I have not created a plan for myself. Actually, a couple of years ago, I tried to work with sort of like a strategic planner type person and they wanted me to like write everything down and I never did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ultimately, my brain is a very creative brain. You know, most entrepreneurs are this way. So it's hard for me to know what it is until it's happening. And there was a specific inflection point for me in, it was between like 2017 and 2018, in that I had graduated psychiatry residency a couple of years prior. And at that time, I had been gotten a job on the faculty at GW, part of the Women's Mental Health Clinic, five trimesters, which is a perinatal psychiatry clinic. And I'm still part of that. I'm still a supervisor in that clinic. But it was like my dream job at that time. But it was when I first also started seeing the seeds of wanting to write for the popular press. I had started an Instagram account, micro blogging, and I realized that writing for other women came much more naturally to me because it felt like talking to a patient or talking to a friend than the academic writing. And then, of course, I was also just burnt out from academic life and all that stuff. So I had to really go through a process of letting go and grieving. In a past life, I used to do global mental health research. I was studying like qualitative methods, right? I had to really just like let all that go and realize that's not my path and dive into more of this advocacy through writing and having the idea for Gemma and sort of following that thread. And also asking lawyers and asking lots of people, if I want to create this educational platform, but I'm an MD, can I do that? What is the liability there? Because we're not providing clinical services. And maybe to come back over the course of the past seven or eight years, I've been good at letting things unfold and not rushing to know exactly what it was. And all of the best things, and I'm reflecting on that, 
part of that, I will say, is like I had the resources. I have great health insurance through my white cis hetero <laughs> partner who is employed at a normal job. So I was able to pay for psychoanalysis. So there was a period of time where I was on the couch for three times a week. I had a space to be able to reflect on all these decisions and think about what it meant for me. And maybe the last thing I want to say is that I do see a very clear distinction in my mind between my clinical work to my patients clinically. And actually, all my patients are in D.C. I live in Austin. I moved to Austin during the pandemic. So it's all virtual now. But I'm Dr. Lakshman to them. And on social media, I'm Pooja. And when I'm in session with my patients, I'm not talking about my social media stuff. I'm not talking about my writing or anything like that. Sometimes I will. I do have some patients that follow me and will like read something in the New York Times. Oh my God, I saw this. That's a new train for me, especially as the book comes out that I'll have to like learn how to navigate that. I also just see this as the future of psychiatry. It's part of the role that some of us at least need to be in because the spaces are gray now. And no, Instagram is not therapy for sure. It's not. And we need to be in the spaces educating. Otherwise it gets filled with all the nonsense. Yeah. Also, even the way that you answered this is indicative of one of the things that I get from your Instagram writing and your storytelling is that you are connecting it to something personal and you're sharing. I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. I'm figuring this out. And it's such a contrast in leadership styles to the previous model of psychiatric care and therapy care is that your therapist, you know nothing about them. There's nothing there, which is probably really important in some therapeutic relationships. It's not that that's wrong, but it's also that you're connecting to so many people by saying, I'm not just an expert and I'm not somebody who's going to say that I have all the answers, but I'm going to be here with you figuring it out. The transparency is really helpful. It's separate and distinct, and we talk a lot about this in my community, than uh, Saul's vulnerability and like just blathering all over the internet. That's not this. There's just this strength of storytelling and personal disclosure that's really helpful. It's no surprise to me that you're connecting with so many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people on Instagram. Thank you. I appreciate that. I will say one other thing on that in that since I've been through my own psychoanalysis and my analyst is actually retiring in this December, which is terrible, but I'm so glad that she's still here for my book launch. Thank God. <laughs> there was a period of time during my analysis where I wondered if I wanted to become a psychoanalyst. I knew that if I were to become a psychoanalyst, I could not do this public work. So I like what you said in that there's different types of therapy. And I knew that I would have to give up that space. I wouldn't be able to do on the couch work because that wouldn't be fair. I wouldn't want to have an analyst who was also trying to be the next Brene Brown. Like that's not fair to your patients, right? Yeah. It's also an important note to make that you have to understand in every industry, whatever the industry is, there's always these different sort of technicalities and specifics of knowing specifically what your lane is and your reasons why you're choosing the thing that you're choosing and understanding what that is and being reflective and thoughtful about that. And what I hear you doing is following the creative thread, the writing thread where you're like, ooh, I, this is how I think. You said something earlier, kind of learn more about myself. And then entrepreneurship, which you've also described as creative as well as incredibly hard outlets. So with that, I want to ask you about Gemma. How are you starting a company? Because you also have an eight-month-old and so many other things that you're doing. That kind of blows my mind. But I know that you're not doing it all at the same time. First, I'm going to ask you, what is Gemma? What are you building? Yes. I founded Gemma actually way back in 2020, in the beginning of the pandemic. And it came together essentially because of my Instagram page. I had started Instagram professionally in like 2018, pretty quickly saw that there was just so much crap on Instagram in the women's mental health space. There really weren't any perinatal psychiatrists who had the same type of credentials and training that I had. And all of the other sort of material that was marketed to moms was very baby focused and very kid focused. Like learn how to treat your kids tantrums or learn how to potty train. But we weren't talking about women. We weren't talking about moms. We were talking about mental health. Basically, 
2019 is when I had the idea. I spent a year talking to lawyers and malpractice folks and to get clear on like, what could I do as an MD? Also really understanding, did I want to start a telemedicine company? And I spent that year realizing I did not. I did not want to start a telemedicine company. So in 2020, I started doing these Zoom classes that were just five weeks, 90-minute Zoom with me teaching the same type of education stuff that I teach my practice in my practice about pregnancy, postpartum, mental health. And the cohorts were small, 15 women, and the price point was like $200. And I realized pretty quickly that if that was going to be the model for Gemma, that it would only add to the inequities in the system because it was a very specific level of resources and type of person who could take that class. Around that time in 2021, I started talking to my now co-founder, Callie Cyrus, who is also a psychiatrist. She's Black and queer. We met when we both lived in D.C. I like to call us both like academic exiles because she had her own backstory from Yale that she's spoken publicly about. And we both had the same feeling. This is all How do we change this? And at the same time, I was talking to my other partner, Lucy Hutner, who is a reproductive psychiatrist in New York City. She's actually the co-founder of Phoebe, which is a postpartum digital roadmap startup. But she was kind of in a transition phase in her career. And we spent almost a year ideating and we worked with a great consulting agency related works that are out of New York as well to do a whole bunch of market research because we knew that we wanted Gemma to be women's mental health big spectrum, not just pregnancy, postpartum. We also knew that we wanted Gemma to actually really focus on systems of oppression. Like we wanted to come at this community from a social justice angle, because that's where all of our own energy was from our own personal experiences in academics and in psychiatry. The entire sort of premise of Gemma, which has now come together as you know, we have a beta membership that's just $5 a month. It's essentially courses, like digital courses, community, which we're doing on WhatsApp. So it's like very lo-fi. And the conversation, facilitated conversations. So not just dumping people in a Facebook group, but actually facilitated conversations with me, Callie, and Lucy. And the entire premise is, yes, there's a need and there's a lane and then there's a place for one-on-one individual therapy for taking medication, but we need something else, something that is conversation-based and education-based to understand the nuances of how our nurture, our environment, how our systems are impacting the way that we as women feel and how we think about ourselves. And that's different than therapy. That's different than taking Zoloft. So we're kind of trying to be some version of masterclass for women's mental health and bring in other experts, which we're starting to do. And the full disclosure here is that last year, Before I had my son, I made the interesting decision of spending six weeks pitching investors during my third trimester, (laughs) which was fun. But that, again, coming back to values and meaning, it was very clarifying for us because we realized that investor money is a means to an end. It's not the goal in itself. And that actually for what Gemma is and what we're trying to build, it makes more sense right now for us to be the ones that get to decide what we're doing. For example, one of our WhatsApp threads is called Hard and it's facilitated by Callie. And it's all about race, identity, privilege, oppression. It's all the hard And it's an experiment. Can we bring together white women, black women, gay women, all the hues, all the identities, and have a facilitated space to have hard conversations guided by someone who has spent their career talking about race and identity and who is a psychiatrist. For us right now, the place that we're in is low price point testing, but building this community and like staying really close to our values as the leadership team and also the value of the product, which essentially is the courses and the community. Tell me some of the names of the courses. 
there's several different courses. One of them is Unloading the Triple Threat. That is all about perfectionism, martyr mode, and mom guilt. Another course is called I've Had Enough. It's funny. The reason that I stumbled on that one was because we have at first had lots of expletives in that course, but then it decided not to. So I've Had Enough. And that's the one that really centers the systems of oppression and really answering and asking these hard questions about how much of this is the toxic system, how much of this is me, what can I do to take back control. And we have a new course that is just coming out tailored to more of the 20s, 30s, the woman who knows that she probably wants to have a kid in the next five years or so, but she's still kind of ambivalent and she's not totally sure how to think about it or what to do. That course is all about what is the conversation that you need to have with yourself. And it's not about how to raise a kid. No, it's more about, is this the right choice for me? How do I know if this is the right choice for me? What does this mean for me? And then how do I talk to my partner? All that type of stuff. And then there's a more kind of straightforward pregnancy, postpartum, mental health course that is all kind of digitally available and take at your own pace. And we're, we're going to have a midlife course coming up and an infertility course. The distance program. And I see the yes. mom guilt. Program. And the mom guilt one is the unloading the triple threat. And those are all available Got through it. the membership right now, which is $5 a month. We have a hard stop because moms, you've yeah. heard how much Puda does. So we're going to have to stop our podcast at this point. I have hours of questions <laughs> for you still. And I know that everyone listening is going to just want to soak it all up. We can find you and follow you at GemmaWomen.com. Yes, right? you can find me at GemmaWomen.com and G-E-M-M-A, Gemma Women. Our membership is on that website. And then I'm also on Instagram at Pooja Lakshman. And my website is PoojaLakshman.com. And you can buy the book, Real Self-Care, at all the places that one buys books. Again, it's called Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. I'm so excited to continue our conversation for next time. Yeah. And if you can afford it to buy the book, if that is well within your means. Pooja, you don't know this, but every time I have someone who writes a book, I basically cajole slash implore people to buy the book because if you got anything out of this conversation, these are people that spend years of their lives putting this information together. And I also just fundamentally believe in, I want more women's voices in the world. I want more books written by women of color and people of diverse backgrounds. Even if you're not going to read it, buy the book, give it to a friend, put it in your local coffee shop, donate it to your library. But it's an extraordinary thing that you do. Buying one book really helps. And then go write a review of it too, which I always do. Pooja, two questions for you, rapid fire questions. Think about the mom who is currently in the throes of a mental health situation. And it's impossible to know. You're six weeks postpartum. You're six months postpartum. As you said on other podcasts, you might be 10 years postpartum and still have issues that need untangling. And they're exhausted. They're tired. They're overwhelmed. They don't think they have more time for a program. If they're feeling that way, why should they sign up for Gemma and what will they get? Gemma is about having a dedicated, safe space for the conversations that you wish you could be having with other people in your life, but you're not quite there yet in terms of feeling comfortable bringing up those hard topics. So Gemma is the place where you can do that that's off of social media, where there's other women who are asking themselves these hard questions and are trying to think about themselves in different ways, but haven't quite gotten to a place of taking action yet for a variety of reasons. That's what Gemma is. We have plenty of people in the membership who haven't had time. Nobody has time to sit down and go through a class. That's why we decided to do WhatsApp because we all have WhatsApp on our phone already. You don't have to download another app. The last thing I want is another app. No, thank you. Instead of scrolling Instagram on your couch at night, what if you were in a community of other women who also were willing to pay $5 a month to invest in asking different questions and thinking about things in a different way? This seems like to me the moment I don't have the means to go to therapy. I'm not sure what I'm asking. The stakes are too high with my partner or my mother-in-law. 
I don't want to ask my neighbor because I don't want to tell them what's going on. I just need to ask a dumb question. I just need to ask, like, is this normal? Is this right? Am I okay? And I know a lot of people that go to these communities too, just to read the experiences and stories of other people. Yes. Yes. And one of the other things that we're doing at Gemma is we have a sub stack that's called Therapy Takeaway. And it's a weekly newsletter that comes every Tuesday where we share tidbits about therapy and that's free. You don't have to be a Gemma member to join that. That's another way. Again, for me, this is really all about conversation and just having different conversations with yourself. We're all just so tired of that same old, I'm not doing enough. I feel bad. I'm a bad mom. No, let's talk about something else. What don't you do? There's so many things that I don't do. I don't cook. My partner does all the cooking. He also goes to the grocery store. I don't check the mail. He does all the mail. (laughs) I exclusively pumped. I did not nurse at the breast because I didn't feel like I was getting anything out of nursing at the breast. And I hated how out of control it felt. I'm also, you know, as a perinatal psychiatrist, I was like very attuned to what was going on with my mental health. And so my priority for me in that postpartum period was my mental health. I pumped exclusively and I just stopped pumping. Yay. And I also combo fed with formula. So I was really flexible with all of those decisions. I don't decorate my house. I don't really ever go shopping. <laughs> you mean like clothes shopping? Yeah, it stresses me out. It's too much for me. You just rewear the same thing? I just like, wear the same things. Yeah, like yeah. I have like the same five things. I had to buy this for a TV thing that I was doing, but I wear like sweatpants really every day. I work from home. I see all my patients from home and I don't normally wear makeup or do my hair. I feel like there's so many things. Good. This is great. How many hours of childcare do you have every week? I have a ton of childcare. My son is in full-time daycare five days a week. And then during the book launch, we actually have been paying for a babysitter that we just found on the weekends for usually four hours. Actually, last weekend, it was six hours, both days on the weekend, because we had lost power the week before in the Texas storms. So we have the resources to pay for that. And it's not cheap, but for me, coming back to mental health, I am the type of person that all money spent on childcare is great money spent. The other thing that I want to specifically say with Gemma is that part of the reason that I'm able to do all this is because I'm my own boss as a physician. Gemma is self-funded and we don't have very much overhead. We just have one person that is awesome, Astrid, who does our social media And as a physician that has my own practice, set my hours. So essentially, I was able to take my career and translate that financially. I'm able to self-fund and it's a luxury. We're small. We're not making any money. Gemma costs money at this point. But I have the privilege of being able to take that risk. And not everybody has being able to take the choice to take a risk like that is a hugely privileged position to be in. Yeah, And it shouldn't be because think of the innovation that we would have if everyone was able to make something creative. Because yeah. Leap is only like $30,000 per person. Yeah, You know, there's just so yeah. much unlocking we can do. That's a whole nother rant and rave that I have on my <laughs> show. I want to have you back because I want to ask you so many questions about Gemma, like what it's like to be an entrepreneur and what building a team is like and just the challenges, the unexpected challenges. But we're going to put a pin in that. I want to just say thank you so much for joining us and for being so candid and transparent and sharing your expertise with everyone. It was just such a pleasure, such a lovely conversation. I am already excited for coming back. But where are you based, Sarah? Are you in New York? I'm a- oh, you're in New York. Okay. I hope at some point that we can get coffee and I would love to be able to just keep chatting. I want to tell you a couple of things that people have said about the Wise Women's Council. One of our members said that 
business support is top notch. On one of our calls, one person said, my mind is already blown and we're only seven minutes in. Hillary said, Sarah, you are one of the best facilitators I have ever met. And Dana said, if you're somebody that regularly designs community or holds space for other people, here's a place where you don't have to because Sarah has figured it all out for you and you can just be when you're in this space. Caroline said once on a call, she said, I'm normally one of those people that's thinking all the time about how you can facilitate something better. And Caroline said, I don't have to do that when I'm with you. Michelle said it's one of the only places she doesn't have to code switch between so many different identities. She doesn't have to hide being a mom. She doesn't have to hide being a business owner. She doesn't have to explain herself over and over again to different people and have them not understand her. If you are living at the intersection of parent, mom, business owner, leader, entrepreneur, facilitator, or you are running a company, come check out the Wise Women's Council. That's a place I made for you. It's what I needed when I first became a parent, and we've been running this program for six years. Head to startupparent.com WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council and apply to join us today. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You can find out more about everything we talked about and all of the show notes here on your podcast player, or you can head to our website, startupparent.com. I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor, and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run book club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host book club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of book club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members and that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase. That's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks, and I'm going to let you discover them when you go to our Substack. Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show, and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them, and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here, and I will see you on the next episode.